In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating, and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana, and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome to the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great guest for you today. Before I introduce him, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And if, if you enjoy our conversation today, like, comment, and share it. My guest today is Doug Mercado, who has worked in the field of international humanitarian assistance and post-disaster recovery for, over, for the past 32 years on assignments with the United Nations, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, the Organization of American States, and various non-governmental organizations. He has managed humanitarian relief operations, refugee assistance programs, and disaster recovery efforts in over 30 countries, and led the U.S. government's humanitarian response to the Ebola epidemic in West Africa in 2015, and served as humanitarian advisor at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in New York from 2008 to 2013, where he directed U.S. government humanitarian policy engagement at the United Nations. He currently holds the position of visiting lecturer at Princeton University School of Public and International Affairs. Mr. Mercado was awarded a Master of Public Policy from Princeton University, a Master of Arts in Latin American Studies from the University of Texas at Austin, and a Bachelor of Arts in Latin American Studies and History from William and Mary. Welcome to the, to the interview today. It's great to be here with you, Ruth, and your listeners as well. Thank you, and thank you for, for making time to do this. So I know I've just read your bio, and you've done a lot. And I know I actually missed out some of the elements from the introduction, but you've had such um, a long and distinguished, distinguished career in humanitarian action. But maybe in your, in your own words, just tell me about yourself. What do you do? What does a typical day look like for you today? What are some of the things that have stood out for you as you've worked in these 32 years in humanitarian aid? Yeah, no, great. That's, uh, you know, it's an easy question and a complicated question because, you know, I often get asked and, and sometimes on forms that I have to fill out, you know, what's your profession? And I put humanitarian, but I mean, I don't know if that really describes what we all do as humanitarian workers very well. And um, in a way, everybody's a humanitarian, right? Everybody that's trying to make the world a better place, whether at the household level, whether it's the community level, you know, the, the regional, national level, we're all humanitarians in a way. So I'm always a little uncomfortable calling myself a humanitarian. I wish there was a better term for that, but I haven't discovered it yet, but maybe we'll come across one as we can do our, our discussion today. But yeah, um, you know, my, my career um, sort of is across many different organizations um, and across many different types of situations. Um, you know, I, I don't have a career with like the United Nations uh, alone or the U.S. government, but um, I just take opportunities where I find them. And so I've worked, you know, with many different groups. I worked with the Organization of American States as my very first assignment in humanitarian action. 
but I've worked with several UN agencies, including um, the World Food Program. That's who I work most often with. I have a, a long-running engagement with USAID's Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance, but I've also worked for a number of NGOs um, over the years as well. So my, my career is not sort of in a in a straight line. It's not, a, you know, some people have a very linear trajectory with their careers. Mine kind of zigzags all over from organization to organization. I have different kinds of positions I hold. Sometimes they're very operational, working in the field, sort of designing and implementing uh, relief actions, but sometimes it's working on policy issues at a capital level, a headquarters level. So, um, you know, I've had a lot of different experiences which shaped my worldview. I've been very lucky to have sort of the multitude of different kinds of experiences with different organizations, working with different people, working in in different cultures. So I, I consider myself very lucky in that regard. I think it's given me a very broad overview of, you know, what are some of the challenges facing, you know, people around the world that are in humanitarian situations, crises, whether it's conflict, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's social and economic disruption, whether it's climate change related. So much I've learned and, um, and I still have a lot more to learn. So hopefully I'll keep going for a while. Yeah, and I'm sure you do. And I hope that that you do. Um, and I, when I was reading your 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 bio as well, then I realized you were involved in the Ebola response in West Africa. And I was actually curious, you know, what that experience was, or what really stood out for you in the Ebola response. And I know we've had Ebola since quite a few times in DRC. My own country, Uganda itself, actually right now has an Ebola outbreak. Yeah, I mean, that was a very unusual situation for me. Most of my experience prior to that had been with conflict, working in conflict zones or working in countries hit by natural disasters, hurricanes, uh, earthquakes, floods, et cetera. So I I got a call one day from USAID and they said, Doug, you know, can you come and be our team leader for the uh, large scale response to the Ebola uh, pandemic in West Africa, primarily in uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone and, and Guinea? My response was like, I know nothing about Ebola. You know, I know nothing about infectious diseases. Don't you want somebody who really is quite familiar with these issues to be your team leader? And they go, no, no, you're the right person because you know how to sort of parachute into a place, quickly analyze the situation. What are the challenges? Who are the uh, main stakeholders? Who do we work with to get the results that we need? So they eventually convinced me that I was the right person to go. And I, I think I did an okay job in the end. But, um, you know, it's really, a, it was a group effort, right? Um, and I, when I think about the um, Ebola response, it's a bit unique too, because that's one response where I felt like we actually, you know, um, you know ended the, the crisis in a way um, through the collective efforts. And I, I always give the first credit to the communities, right? The communities were the most impactful in terms of bringing the uh, the epidemic to an end, the pandemic to an end. Of course, there was support from the national governments. There was support from donors, from UN agencies and NGOs. A lot of stakeholders were involved, but the communities were really on the front line and they really made the biggest difference. But I felt like this is one that collectively we actually finished. You know, we were able to, to stop the outbreak eventually. It took some time. It wasn't immediate, but I think through the right actions, the right approaches, we did achieve that. And so you kind of felt good about it, like, hey, we, we actually ended this crisis. But I mean, so many other humanitarian crises that we work in, especially conflicts, you feel somewhat impotent because you can do everything in your power as a humanitarian organization, as a humanitarian worker. You know, you're not there to end the conflict. You're there just to, you know, save lives and relieve suffering from people who are suffering, you know, from a conflict situation. So you always feel a bit impotent, like here I am, you know, providing food, water, shelter to these people 
who've been displaced or affected by conflict, but I'm not really getting to the root problem here. I'm not stopping the conflict. So, so in that sense, you know, I mean, it's, it's strange to say that I, I felt good about the Ebola response because, you know, through our act, collective actions, we were able to actually, you know, you know, address the root cause and, and the, um, and the pandemic. And so we could walk away saying we've done our job, you know, of course it's come back a couple of times then, but I think we'd left behind capabilities in those countries that uh, were much enhanced then to deal with it without the large international, you know, inputs from different organizations. So, yeah, I think that was in my mind, what was most unique that we were able to actually use our humanitarian toolkit um, to, to support the, the end of the crisis. No, and I'm so glad you say that because it's, it's, it has to be um, a privilege, for lack of a better word, to be able to actually work in a crisis and see an end to it. Because as you said, most of the times it's, it's you leave and the situation, in fact, in some instances, has just gotten worse and you don't see an end to it. Yeah, I remember, you know, I was in Bosnia during the war in Bosnia and we were providing food, shelter, health care, you know, a whole range of services and yet it was it was never enough because the bombs kept flying, the bullets kept, you know, um, knocking people over. Um, you know, we, we weren't really getting to the root problem. And even I remember some of the beneficiaries would say, you're giving us food to keep us alive so we can be killed by a bomb tomorrow. Oh, and so there was a sense of futility in providing the humanitarian assistance because we weren't really protecting them. You know, we were, we were like, yes, we were helping for sure, but we weren't protecting them from from the direct impact of the conflict. So, yeah, that's always stuck in my mind. Yeah. And I wonder if you can talk to me a little bit about, because this is actually the first time I'm interviewing someone on my podcast um, of someone who has worked uh, with the government department. Uh, so one of the things I'm curious about, and maybe hopefully our listeners may also be interested in, is how the funding, what, you know, how funding decisions are made. Um, you know, the needs are massive, the priorities uh, enormous, endless. What goes into you know making these decisions for you or for USAID to yeah. fund? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's a complicated process, and because we have to remember that you know even though the U.S. government you know is large and has a lot of resources, USAID has a lot of capacity in terms of funding. Um, you know, it doesn't have all the solutions itself, right? It has to be a collective effort. So there's many donors involved. There's many other countries. Um, you know, countries are normally the, the primary donors for humanitarian response, but we see more and more foundations getting involved. There's a number of foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example, that contribute. Um, you know, the, the private sector has also been uh, getting, getting more involved. So there's funding coming from the private sector. So I think that the challenge is how do you match the, the available funding? And it is limited. It's not an infinite source of funding, right? At, at some point, you know, you only have so much funding and you have to figure out how to best use it. But how do you match, you know, the, the levels of funding available every year to the level of need, which is only growing, it seems, every year as we see more crises linked to conflict, but also, you know, climate affected populations who need humanitarian assistance and so forth. So, so it's not easy. I mean, in an ideal world, you know, donors make their funding decisions, you know, based purely on, on need, right? Uh, you know, trying to make sure that the resources are flowing to those countries, you know, most impacted, those communities most, you know, in need of humanitarian assistance. But of course, there's always, you know, political priorities that also intervene, I would say. I mean, that's the reality of it. Countries do have political objectives and a political agenda around the world. 
but you know, at, at USAID, when I when I do work there, I, I think we do our best to try and, and sort of build a firewall between the political agenda uh, of the U.S. government um, and and the way we we channel our humanitarian assistance to make sure that it is needs based, right? It's not given to a certain country just because perhaps you know they're they're an ally of the U.S., but we give it no because. The people are, are in need. So, yeah, I, I think there is a bit of tension. And you'll see that, I think, with almost any donor, mm-hmm. right, especially governmental donors, you know, how they match their their assistance, their disaster assistance, you know, with their political priorities. But um, I think, you know, uh, most good donors will try and build a firewall again between, you know, their political agenda and the need to reach out to people in need no matter where they are. Yeah. And that's one of the humanitarian imperatives as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, it's, um, you know, it, often it's, it's, it's not fair, I think, because sometimes the media drives um, the, the flow of funding. If if the media has put the spotlight on a certain country um, and that gets the attention of donors, puts maybe pressure on donors as well to respond, then you see more money flowing to that particular country. But, you know, it's the CNN effect, we call it, right? <laughs> when yeah. CNN shows up, but it's other media as well. But when that spotlight shifts, um, if the if the if the disaster lingers for you know many months or sometimes years, then sometimes the donor interest sort of wanes and they move on sort of to the latest crisis that's in the media spotlight. So you know I think MSF publishes a list of forgotten crises every year. So I yeah. think that's a really good good exercise because it reminds us that maybe though even though certain you know populations are not in the spotlight, we can't forget that they have legitimate needs and they should be addressed. Yeah, I know you, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the media as well. In fact, you know, as as we both know, often we are also trying to get crises on the media, on the agenda of the media, just because by spotlighting them, then that actually does generate uh, support, both from public, from the people. And then, of course, that also influences or at least they lobby their governments to do something about a specific or particular crisis. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I never had any experience working in the media, so I'm not sure I know exactly how to to influence the media. But um, I think, you know, that's why a lot of humanitarian agencies, you know, do have communications units. And I think they do their best to, to bring media out to countries that aren't getting much attention or situations. I think it's imperative for, for the humanitarian groups, you know, if a country's not getting enough attention, um, whether it's because of the lack of media or maybe it's not a, a political priority, then I think it's it's up to, you know, the UN agencies and NGOs and other international organizations to advocate for more, you know, um, more more assistance for, for more funding for those countries. We really, you know, we have to do our best to make sure everyone's not left behind. But we also have to be aware that in, in the world that we live in, you know, there are limits to funding. Yeah. Fortunately, it seems there's limits to funding. And so we have to try and do our best to prioritize, you know, what's what's critical, what's the most important thing to do, you know, given the fact that uh, we do have a limited amount of resources for humanitarian action. Yeah. And I guess part of that equation is really figuring out how do we reduce the need for humanitarian yeah. assistance in the first instance. Yeah. Yeah. If we can prevent conflicts, you know, that that erases a lot of the humanitarian need that crops up every year. But um Again, I mean, for me as a humanitarian, it's a little frustrating because it's, 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 you know, not within my mandate to prevent conflicts or to end conflicts. That lies more within the realm of obviously, you know, diplomats, nation states, um, and some, some nonprofits too. Some organizations are dedicated to peace building, right? Yeah. Try and make sure that conflicts, you know, don't break out or if they do, that they end very quickly. So that's, 
that's, you know, equally important as delivering humanitarian assistance. It's like trying to end the conflict or prevent the conflict from occurring in the first place. That's the ideal situation. Yeah. And how did you end up in humanitarian aid? It was quite by accident. You know, I, I never dreamt of a career. When I was a boy, I wanted to be a baseball player or I guess an astronaut, uh, maybe a doctor. I don't know. Yeah. Typical things. Um, so I, I had no vision for this. But um, I was uh, I was um, actually in graduate school one year uh, at the University of Texas at Austin. And I had the summer off in between the two years. And so I went back to Washington to work at the Organization of American States, where I'd served on one of their magazines as an editorial assistant for some time before graduate school. So when I got to Washington to continue my work editing the, the magazine, they turned to me and said, oh, can we send you to Nicaragua instead of staying here in Washington to work on the magazine? And I said, why? And they said, well, you know, the, the wars just ended in, in Nicaragua. It was the Contra War uh, back in the 80s and, and early 90s. And uh, the OAS was part of the peace process. So they were very involved in, in securing the peace and, and, and stabilizing the country. And part of their effort was to help refugees return home because many Nicaraguans had fled the violence during the war to the neighboring countries of uh, Costa Rica and Honduras. And so they asked me to go down and help out with the refugee return program. And I, I knew nothing about refugee affairs, refugee assistance, but I, I love traveling. I love experiencing new countries, new places. So I said, hey, sounds interesting. Yeah, I'll do it. And so I went and that was kind of the start of my humanitarian career, just kind of an opportunity that fell out of the sky. I wasn't looking for it. I had no intention to to look in this area of work, but um, it kind of found me and I, I found it so compelling, you know, making a difference in people's lives, um, you know, having the chance to make a difference in people's lives anyhow. So I kind of stuck with it after I finished my graduate degree. I, I, I continued to seek opportunities in the humanitarian world. And, and here I am, you know, 32 years later <laughs> doing the same kind of work. Yeah. And... I'm just going to try now and really get to talk about fiction storytelling and um, which is really the question I try to interrogate uh, on the podcast. And I guess my, one of my first questions for you is, um, you know, what is your tech? What is your perspective on this question? Whether fiction, number one, can raise awareness about humanitarian crisis and then secondly, whether it can mot motivate action um, to address the drivers and consequences of humanitarian crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, works of, of fiction, you know, have their, their part in trying to help the world or individuals maybe uh, understand what's going on in, in a land far, far away, right? To bring the reality of a humanitarian crisis to others who, who may not experience that situation. I mean, here in the U.S., you know, we're very lucky. We haven't directly experienced war, you know, in uh, 150 years or so. And so the, the concept of, you know, an active conflict on our territory uh, is just something most Americans can't come to understand. But by reading some work of fictions that maybe address issues, particularly linked to conflict, of course, but um, there can also be, you know, great literature about, you know, climate change that brings the reality of climate change closer to people. For example, or I'm sure there'll be lots of books written, fiction books that relate to the Ebola outbreak, mm -hmm. right? These are all sort of, um, you know, um, things that have happened in the past that are fertile ground, I think, for fiction writers, especially people who experienced it, you know, firsthand, some of these crises. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it really brings a very personal, you know, level of attention to these crises, Um 
because usually they're written by people who have been directly impacted by the crisis. Often they have, or at least they've been, you know, part of it as maybe as a relief worker. There's many right. workers who've gone on to write books about their experience. So at least, you know, they've had that firsthand experience. So you, you can feel the the authenticity when you read, you know, a work of fiction from somebody who's been touched directly or at least indirectly by it. So, yeah, I think it has a, a great role to play, but I still encourage people to read the newspapers to find out what's going on in real time. I encourage people to read books of, of nonfiction that cover some of these issues, but I mean, they c- it can be very powerful. Um, I just watched a movie a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, it won an Academy Award, I think, a couple of years ago for best foreign film. It's called Quo Vadis Aida. Mm-hmm. And it was about the uh, the massacre of civilians at Srebrenica in Bosnia. I mean, it's based on on real life events. So, um, but it was it was a fictionalized account, and it was very powerful. If, if you watch that movie and you don't come away moved, and you don't come away angry and incensed about things that happen in the world to people, you know, who suffer unnecessarily, then I don't know. It's hard to say you, you've got much of a heart because, um, uh, you know, it really brought the reality of the, 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 the problems people were facing in Srebrenica and, and the disaster that was looming upon them and then the horrible things that took place to uh, to the people of Srebrenica. So, yeah, no, fiction, absolutely. I, I, I encourage, you know, all my friends who want to understand the world that I work in, you know, to read, again, the newspapers, read uh, media accounts, um, read nonfiction, but also read fiction because it really kind of, I think, you know, shows in a very personal way yeah. how crises, whether they're natural disasters or conflicts, pandemics, how they affect people's lives. And, and those people's lives are, are much like our own. And so we should feel a lot of empathy. Yeah. No, and I'm, I'm so glad you also mentioned that, you know, while fiction is important, we should also pair it with um, factual information, whether it's, you know, from media, but really other sources of nonfiction to really sort of give us a full picture. But can I ask you then, because you also mentioned you do read nonfiction, um, what would be different from your perspective or what would fiction do differently from nonfiction? Um, well, I, I think that, I mean, fiction usually is a personal account, you know, of somebody's direct contact with a crisis, right? That's often what you see in fiction, the, the characters as they experience it. So you see their perspective, whereas, I mean, nonfiction will try and give you maybe the perspective of all the stakeholders to understand, you know, what was influencing their actions as well. If you take the case of, of Srebrenica, you know, I mentioned that that movie, the, the fictional account of Srebrenica, but there's been many books written about it, you know, nonfiction books. And it tries to understand, you know, all the elements that went into the decisions that were made by all the stakeholders right. and, you know, why they did what they did, you know, understand how it happened, how it could have happened and maybe what could have been done to prevent it. Whereas I think fictional accounts just, you know, maybe, you know, are designed more to to hit you emotionally. And, uh, you know, like make you understand that this is a bad thing happening. We need to prevent it from happening again. Right. And maybe this is a good way f- moment for us to talk about um, the beautiful things. I'm just looking at my book actually over there. The Beautiful <laughs> Things That Heaven Bears Yes, by Dinao uh, Mengistu. Mm-hmm. Um, what is this book about? Well, it's about refugees who seek a life in the United States. It's about people who've been uprooted by violence in their own country, um, Ethiopia. Um, and, uh, and many of them, you know, fled the country seeking safety. And some of them ended up in the United States. So it's really about, you know, how people leave their countries. It's a, it's a, it's a book about departures, but it's also mm-hmm. a book about arrivals, arriving mm-hmm. in a new country 
where life is not the same, even though, you know, you may have escaped the violence, the threat of violence. Um, you're now in a country where things, you know, while on the surface, they may seem familiar in many, many ways, they're unfamiliar and you have to figure out what is your place and how do you navigate life? How do you build a life you know, from almost scratch in this new society where you come with nothing but maybe a couple suitcases and, uh, you know, you leave a lot behind, even though, yes, you leave the conflict behind, but you leave many positive things behind, like your your family, your community network, you know, your familiarity with the language and the social structures. You come to a place where you, you've lost all that familiarity and you have to make sense of it and, and try and, and achieve your goals just because you you leave your country. When you when in the case of this book, the the, um, the main character left Ethiopia, he didn't leave dreams behind, but maybe those dreams you know, have to be modified or they have to be achieved in a different way in this new and, and, and different land. Right. And maybe this is a good moment for us, for you, to read an excerpt from the book, and then we can talk in more detail about that excerpt. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, the, the excerpt I'm going to read is really sort of, you know, uh, giving you an indication of one of the main themes of the book that, you know, even when you leave your country, you know, in this case, uh, the main character uh, left, you know, Ethiopia behind. Um, you know, you don't really leave your country in a way and some of it comes with you. So this, this kind of highlights that and some of the challenges of adapting to your new country. So I'll go ahead and, and begin now. Ethiopia. To call the building insular is to miss the point entirely. Living here is as close to living back home as one can get, which is precisely why I moved out after two years and precisely why my uncle has never left. Maybe to give a bit of context, um, the main character of the book, you know, has left Ethiopia, gone to the U.S., and he's living with his uncle in a, in a building in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., which is inhabited entirely by Ethiopians. So he's almost back in Ethiopia by living in this building with his uncle. So I'll continue now. Hardly a word of English is spoken inside of these doors. The hallways on every floor smell of what? Coffee and incense. The older women still travel from apartment to apartment dressed in slippers and white blankets that they keep wrapped around their heads, just as if they were still walking through the crowded streets of Addis. The children keep only the friendships sanctioned by their parents. There are few families who occupy entire floors. They run them like minor villages with children, grandchildren, grandparents, and in-laws all living within shouting distance of one another. There is a beauty and a terror to those floors. Only once did I ever step onto one of them and see it firsthand. When I got off the elevator, I was met by a row of open apartment doors, each one guarded by a young woman who stepped into the doorway and stared at me with more apprehension and fear than I've ever been greeted by. I turned back to the elevator immediately, feeling as if I had intruded onto something sacred, something that I had no right to witness or speak of again. My uncle stands out from the rest of the building that he's only one man with no wife, mother, or children, gives him an independence and peculiarity that no one here is comfortable with. He is respected because of the money and power he once had in Ethiopia, because his name was once associated with the cabinet members and princes of the old empire. He is also mocked by some for exactly the same reason. Berhane Selase, it's a beautiful name. Translated into English, it means Light of the Holy Trinity, he no longer has his money or his prestige, but he has his reserve and his corner apartment on the 24th floor. For Silver Rock, it's a beautiful apartment. I believe he took as much time preparing its rooms as he did studying the design for the house he built for himself. 
It no more fits in with the dilapidated exterior, the dimly lit hallways, crumbling paint, and broken elevators than he does. Only one of the elevators is working today. A line builds up in front of it, forcing a round of general greetings with people whose faces, much less names, I can hardly recall. I know that there's a curiosity surrounding me. There's an upturned glance behind every salam and tadillas that I exchange. I'm being measured for everything, for my clothes, hair, shoes, for my readiness to offer a proper greeting and goodbye. Sometimes I think of my decision to leave this building as an escape, while at other times it seems more like an abandonment. I try not to take the thought too seriously, but when every eye you catch seems to hold an accusation or question behind it, a decision has to be made. Either I left to create a new life of my own, one free from the restraints and limits of culture, or I turned my back on everything I was and that had made me. Each familiar face waiting from the elevator seems to want to ask the same question. Why, what have you done with yourself? Where have you gone? And who do you think you are? I know there would be a fair amount of pleasure behind the pity that would greet me if my life, my, if my life were ever laid bare before this crowd. I pressed into the back of the elevator with at least 15 other people. There's a joke waiting to be had. How many Ethiopians can you fit in an elevator? All of them. What do you call an elevator full of Ethiopians? An oxymoron. Once the elevator begins to move, the gossip begins. It disguises innocent conversation between two women, speaking much louder than necessary. One woman claims to have seen Dr. Negatu's daughter getting out of a cab by herself at sunrise. To make matters worse, she was sitting in the front seat. The news is followed by the customary tisking of sound judgment being passed. It's soon followed up with other news of the day. Those who don't join in on the conversation simply stand quietly like myself, complicit and greedy. In one protracted elevator ride, there are rumors of infidelity, abuse, drugs, unemployment. It all amounts to one thing, proof of a vanishing culture. Time, distance, and nostalgia have convinced these women that back in Ethiopia, we were all moral and perfect, all of which is easier to believe when you consider the lives that most of us live now. With our menial jobs and cramped apartments, it's impossible not to want to look back sometimes and pretend there was once a better world, one where husbands were faithful, children were obedient, and life was easy and wonderful. With enough time, one woman says in Amharic, there won't be any Ethiopians. They'll all become American. Well, that's quite a, a powerful and great selection to, to actually read. I'm glad you, you chose that. Um, and one of the things I guess maybe I could ask you about reading about it and listening to you read it again is this idea of recreating what you've lost in a new country. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I can preface my answer, you know, with, you know, the story of maybe why I was interested in this book. And one of my very first assignments in the humanitarian you know, sector was in Sudan in the early 90s. I was sent there by an NGO um, as a, a resettlement officer. This NGO was resettling Ethiopian refugees who had fled to Sudan and resettling them back to the United States. So I spent all my day interviewing refugees to find out their, their case history, why they had fled, you know, their persecution story, what happened to them in Ethiopia, why they had to come to Sudan and so forth. So I spent all day talking with, you know, dozens and dozens of individual, individuals every week, 
learning their stories and so forth um, and building a portfolio for them that would be sort of adjudicated by uh, an immigration officer who would make the final decision on whether they would be allowed to, to go to the U.S., resettle in the U.S. And so, you know, I, I saw many people pass through those doors and, you know, some were young and ready to begin a new life, you know. I think they understood some of the challenges they would face going to the U.S., but I also saw many old people, people in their 70s and 80s, you know, old women who'd never kind of lived outside the village environment they had in Ethiopia. Now, I always wonder, it's like, are we doing them a favor, you know, by sending them to the U.S., you know, especially the older people who probably would never learn English, would never really sort of, you know, I say, integrate fully or much at all um, into the culture. So that that question was always burning in my mind, you know. Even though I think on the surface, you know, we believe resettlement is a good solution for many people. Is it always the best solution? Right. And I think this passage from the, the beautiful things that heaven bears kind of is witness to that, that, you know, we're not always sure that our lives will be better when we go to a new land. Right. And sometimes we then reminisce and think about, well, it was much better, you know, back home, even though there was violence that eventually drove us out or some situation that made our lives unbearable. So, um, so, yeah, no, I mean, it really, you know, I think it gets to the question of, you know, is it easy to leave your country? What do you bring with you? I mean, can you adapt your life? Can you change? Can you, you know, um, become an American after having grown up in Ethiopia and having all the different elements of culture imbued within your essence, you know, for, for years or decades? So, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of fascinating questions come out of this book. And I'm, I'm really glad that I read it. And I'm glad we're talking about it today. Yeah. No, thank you. And also th thank you for sharing your experience. Um, I mean, when I worked for UNHCR a long time ago, uh, I remember thinking about that specific question um, when, you know, people resettled to a new country who are already, you know, elderly in their 70s or 80s. And I often used to wonder, is this a decision that, you know, you make for your young family um, to see, you know, for the younger members of the family you know, it, it was yeah, just something I've always, always, you know, also wondered uh, about. Um, and of course, thinking about assimilation and all of these, these questions. But one of the things as well that the book brings out, I think you've touched upon it already, is some of the things that, you know, thinking about is this question of memory and how you remember the past. And the excerpt you read, you know, when the narrator is thinking, or oh, they think, you know, what they left behind was perfect. And yet they fled violence. Yeah. Yes. And then the other element I was thinking a lot about is the between the, the friends. You know, the, he, you know, the narrator has these other two friends who are also mm -hmm. who are immigrants from DRC, I believe, and from Kenya. Kenya, correct? Uh huh. Yeah, and so the narrator himself, his uncle. I think the grind or the hassle or the challenges that they speak about trying to find job, trying to live the American dream. And I wonder if you can also speak about that, that element or aspect of the story. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd be happy to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's difficult, right? Because you often come and you're an outsider. You come with few resources. You don't fully understand the culture, you know, that you're living in. Even if you speak English and not all, all of them come over speaking English very well, at least initially. I mean, how do you how do you interpret what's around you? Right. And and, and how do you achieve your dreams? And I I think going back to that point about, you know, um, people coming over and maybe they're coming over to make a better life for your children. That's that's my impression in many cases, I think. 
the adults realize that they're going to come over, they're going to have to struggle. Um, they'll probably be taking jobs that are menial compared to what they would do before. There's many refugees who come over here, for example, they have medical degrees, but those medical degrees aren't recognized, you know, in the United States. So whereas at home, they could practice medicine, you know, probably a pretty well-paid position in many cases, and definitely with some uh, high level of status, they come here and they can't continue as, as doctors or medical professionals. So some of them will end up driving taxi cabs, honestly. Um, so you have somebody who's got a medical degree driving a, a, a taxi cab. But I think, you know, sort of the, the, the wager they make is that, yes, life is going to be tough for them. It's not going to be paradise for them. But if they work hard and, and you know, they're going to give their children an opportunity to succeed in the U.S. So, I, you know, I don't have any scientific data to back this up. But my impression is a lot of refugees will come knowing that their life will be a struggle, but that they can provide, you know, a better future for their children by coming here. So, you know, I think that's a tough thing because you're almost giving up on your life to make a better life for your children, you know, which I think is a noble thing in many ways, but also kind of sad too, that you can't have the life that you maybe wanted or had prepared for back in, in your in your home country. So, yeah, I mean, the, the stories about the struggle, you know, of the, the three main characters, one Ethiopian, one Kenyan, and one from, from Congo, and they feel a sense of solidarity being African, but they also come from different countries with different experiences in Africa as well. But they all face the challenge of, I think, you know, you know, achieving their dreams in the U.S. once again, where they start, maybe they don't have the, a university degree um, from the U.S. They have to eventually struggle to get that. It's not always easy because they have to work and pay, you know, um, for their, their living expenses at the same time they're trying to pay for tuition. I think it's, it's a struggle. It's frustrating. And I think, yeah, none of them really, I think, achieved a high level of happiness, you know, in the sense by end of the book, I think, you know, I don't think they regret their decision coming to the U.S., but I don't think they, they achieved the dreams they hoped to achieve, you know, by coming, changing their location and coming to the U.S. Yeah, no, absolutely. It doesn't have that. I guess they don't necessarily get the American dream, quote unquote, at least by the end. Yeah. Uh, A lot of Americans don't get the American dream. Right. <laughs> I don't know who gets the American dream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I have so many questions, of course, we could discuss forever, but I'm also mindful that we are running out of time. But maybe my final, as I slowly come to conclude on the interview, I'll just ask one final question mm -hmm. on the book and then just a couple of quest questions and then I'll end it. But just on the book, I guess to me, just circling back on what you said about the power of fiction in a personal way, um, helping us to understand a situation for the characters, you know, what are some, what is, at least in the beautiful things that heaven bears, what are some of those elements that I explained for the reader in a personal way that at least have stayed with you after reading the book? Yeah, I think, you know, um, you know, one of the other, you know, sort of themes in, in the book was just about you know, when you come in, especially maybe as an African refugee, in this case, the three main characters were from Ethiopia, Kenya, and, and Congo. Um, you know, they're in a situation where you have, you know, very complicated cultural environment with sort of racial issues, you know, in the U.S. that they didn't have to confront when they were back home in, in their countries. Um, but then they have to deal with that. They have to deal with an African-American community. And, and the story takes place in Washington, D.C., but they, 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 they live in an African-American community that feels very disenfranchised, that generally doesn't have the opportunities uh, that, that their white counterparts have and so forth. So I think they have to navigate sort of the, the sort of the cultural divides and the tensions between the white community and the African-American community in, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And that's something that their lives 
back in their home countries hadn't really prepared them for. Where do they sit? Yes, the color of their their skin is, is black, but they're not necessarily living the lives that the African Americans uh, did in that mm-hmm. community. So I think that's a very element, interesting element of the book too. Like even though you come, you may look racially similar. You know, you come from the same uh, similar racial background. You come from a very different sort of cultural historical background. And, and, and how do you navigate these pre-existing tensions in a society that you've come as a refugee? Right. Um, and again, I would love to speak more about that, but I'm going to leave it here and ask you just one more question, which is, um, you know, anyone who listened to this conversation, if they had to take one action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis, what action would that be for you? Um, one action. Wow. Well, um, I mean, it's, it's very difficult for people to get involved directly, I think, in, in humanitarian action, you know, at least international humanitarian action, because it involves going overseas and normally you have to join a, a large organization. So um, so I think what can they do sitting at home is, is maybe, you know, the, the way to, to look at it. And, um, you know, they can write to their Congress people and advocate for adequate funding for humanitarian assistance, you know, write to your senators, congressmen who have a role in shaping the, the U.S. budget, including foreign assistance every year. They can do that um, if they feel that a war has been going on for too long and the U.S. needs to get more involved in finding a solution to end the war. They should write, you know, to the president, to to their Congress people, and so forth. You know, there's definitely things they can do to try and shape the you know the foreign policy of of their government. Now, I guess now I'm thinking of the U.S. since I, right. I live here, but also I mean I think there's things they can do at the local level. You know, this book I read, you know. The beautiful things that heaven bears is about refugees coming to the U.S. Right, Correct. right now we do have a lot of refugees coming to the U.S., um, particularly from Afghanistan and uh, and Ukraine. So chances are many of the people who might read this book will have refugees in their communities, and these refugees are coming in, and uh, and they're going to need a lot of help as well. So there's often things you can do in your community, volunteering, right. Um, for example, um, a lot of these folks will not speak English. And so there's, you know, volunteer organizations that, uh, you know, work to help, you know, bring literacy and especially learning English. So, you know, you could be an English language tutor to some of these refugees to help get their English up to speed. But there's some organizations you can donate, you know, money to that support the refugees by helping them find housing, jobs, access to social services and so forth. So there are things that you can do practically, you know, at the local level as well. So, yeah, I mean, just um, I think there's there's a lot of ways for people to get involved without it being a full-time job. I mean, for me, it's a full-time job, but I think there's things we can do if we have the desire to help people out who are in a difficult situation, help them find their feet and help them to realize their dream, you know, in the country to which they've arrived as a refugee. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I know we've run out of time. Uh, thank you so much for really making the time to speak with me. I've really enjoyed uh, our conversation. And as you can tell, I wish we could actually discuss all of this some more. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Ruth, for the opportunity to come and talk a bit about my humanitarian work, but also about this fantastic book, which I recommend that all your readers pick up uh, or your listeners pick up and, and read when they have a moment. Yeah, and it's quite an easy read, too. It's a short, compact book. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Doug today. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'd like to thank Jamal Swift, my co-producer, and the Nomadic Band for the music. Thank you.